Good morning, everybody. Um, don't let this bright and lively facade fool you. I am exhausted. Um, it's, I'm, I'm kind of thinking that it's perhaps especially appropriate this morning. We're talking about uh, the question of what lies beyond this world or what is their life after death and such questions. And at the top of Mount Gungun yesterday, I was seriously contemplating that question. It was, uh, it was quite an extraordinary experience and um, I guess at least, if it's one of those bucket list things, I've ticked that box, man, I'm not going back there again. In talking about life after death today, I've purposefully chosen this topic this morning, being Friend Day, and if you're visiting with us as a, as a friend, uh, welcome. Thank you for being here. I know sometimes it takes quite a bit of courage to come among a group of strangers, and, and hopefully by now you won't feel like a, a stranger anymore. Um, and uh, I thought that of all conceivable topics, if you look at humanity in general, I think I think one topic that we are interested in, uh, even sometimes to the point of obsession, is with this idea of death and, uh, in particular, what happens to us after we die. I'm, I've got that graphic there, that doorway, and um, some of you, I know, are going to look at that and say, oh, look, the perspective's all wrong. Those doors are way too big for that entranceway. And if you can look beyond that, look to the light, because uh, that's an interesting and a, and a common popular metaphor these days, isn't it? Walk to the light or stay away from the light, don't go there. The image of crossing over a threshold, and that's why I've selected this graphic, because when we talk about death, certainly from a Christian point of view, we are talking about a threshold experience, and I have to sort of explain that a little bit more fully as we proceed this morning. I've got there a text uh, from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, words from Jesus in addressing his disciples. And again, I'd be surprised if most of us don't uh, readily recognise these words. Words, I think, that for any believer is uh, are precious words uh, because they contain a, a precious, encouraging message. Jesus said to his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Comforting words indeed. But what does it all mean? What does it all mean? And so to the lesson this morning, what does lie beyond this world? What happens to us after we die? Nothing, something, what does the Bible have to say about these sorts of questions? And in asking these questions, we need to get a bit of context. You see, Christianity is not just a philosophy, if you will. It's not just a collection of wise or even speculative sayings or insights, etc. It is, it is a world view. It is a, it is a global package in response to the question of what is it to be a human being? Where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? These are the fundamental big questions of life that the scriptures explain to us. And so 
in asking about what happens to us when we die, jumping into the middle of the story, if you will, we need to first back up and get the, get the, the big picture, the bigger context. And so I'd invite your, intention, your attention to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We won't be taking the time to read through the text this morning. I, I suspect it's a fair assumption that most of us would have some general idea of what Genesis chapters 1 and 2 say. Let me summarise it this way. God creates the heavens and the earth. Everything that is, is the result of God's creative work. And as the work of creation unfolds, it reaches a climax with the making of humankind, unique among all of God's creative work, in that humankind are said to be made in the image of God. So the language there, icons, uh, little, little images of our creator. And in this world we have the gift of the garden, that cultivated garden that God gifts to humanity and gives them the instruction, take this cultivated, beautiful, well-watered garden on a mountaintop, if you will. And all of that's there if we were, if we were to unpack the, the language and the culture of the day. All of that imagery is there. Take this and expand it into the rest of planet Earth. That's the, that's the mandate, the creation mandate that we have. Be fruitful and multiply, perhaps is language that we're familiar with. And of course, in the midst of the garden is the tree of life. And so you have the image of humanity created in the image of God with free and ready access to the tree of life. And of course, the conclusion to God's creative work on day seven, remember, God rested. And so we have the image of God's creation, creating, bringing, bringing order out of chaos, if you will. And as it reaches its completion, its telos, its, it, as it accomplishes its God-designed purpose, we have this image of Shabbat Shalom, rest and peace. And I guess while you're holding your mind that image of bringing order out of chaos, um, you might you might consider it's a funny word. It's even it's hard to pronounce and it's even harder to spell. Homeostasis. Homeostasis almost sounds like you're saying something wrong, doesn't it? But it's a very rich image. And and the best way of understanding it, I think, is if you imagine a, a tranquil pool, and you drop a pebble into the middle of that pool. And, and we've all done this and we've all seen it and, and, and the ripples instantly just, just stir up the, disturb the water. But then as the ripples move away, you have this gradual return to that sense of tranquility and peacefulness. And I want to suggest to you that that's something approaching the image as God reveals to us where we've come from as a result of his creative work and his good purposes for us, something like that. Shabbat, shalom, rest and harmony. But of course, as we read on, just the third chapter of the book, we have the fall, the rebellion. And of course, sin enters the picture. Sin is simply, uh, well, without spending a lot of time unpacking it, sin is in, in essence falling short of the mark. There's the ideal purposes of God and sin is when we fall short of it or we go beyond it, missing, missing the mark. 
And of course, as a result of that, we have issues of separation and alienation, the undoing of the harmony that was God's work and God's intention. Alienation from God, alienation from one another, alienation even within oneself, one's true self. Today, I guess we're so psychologically savvy, we can make sense of that. We can understand that sense of alienation that we can experience within ourselves. And, and we even talk about things like conditions like anxiety and depression, etc. All simple examples of this, this sense of brokenness and, 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 and separation, alienation within ourselves. And of course, alienated from our environment. And so we've got the idea of spiritual death. The expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Separation from God. Separation, you'll notice also necessarily, if you're outside of the garden, then you're, you're barred from access to the tree of life. And so accompanying spiritual death, separation from God, is physical death, defined as it were as the separation of the body and spirit. I'm just going to use two biblical texts to highlight, I, I hope, the simplicity of the Bible's teaching about what exactly death is for us. Uh, Reading from the wise man, the preacher Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Um, Nathan and Craig were just saying a little while ago how their experience of um, climbing Mount Biwar as teenagers didn't seem to be that big a deal. An adventure, sure, but it wasn't that big a deal. You look at it today and you think, oh, I don't, I'm not going there, I'm not going there. Um, they'd have probably bounded up. They probably could have skipped up Mount Gungan in their younger years, but when they reach my age, they'll, they'll appreciate how, um, how formidable a task that is. Because that's a metaphor really for life, isn't it? Notice the metaphors that, uh, that uh, Solomon uses here for the process of ageing and all of the disability, all of the limitations that come with that. Verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, presumably before your eyesight goes, the clouds return after the rain. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, at the bottom of Mount Gungan after that epic journey, when the grinders cease because they are few. Enough said about that. And those looking through the windows grow dim when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. Eh? Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the picture is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well. Notice here, verse 7, the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Boy, I wish we had some time to spend with these statements Most of us in this room, unless we're wonderfully and naively still young, most of us can relate to some degree. Some of us can say, oh yes, yes, that is my experience. 
through no fault of my own. I am growing old and frail and it hurts. It hurts. And we're all staring down the barrel of a time when the dust will return to the ground. That's our physical elements will return to the dust and our spirit will return to God who gave it. James is very to the point. James chapter 2 and verse 26 says, The body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And James is talking in a different context. He's not meaning to give a, a lesson on or make a point even of, of what, what happens to us when we die. But incidentally, he describes that same process that Solomon describes. The separation, remember that's the fundamental idea underlying death from a biblical point of view. Separation of our physical body from our spirit. That's the definition of death. But, and here's the good news of Christianity, of course, Jesus changes everything, absolutely everything. If the fall, the rebellion, contrary to God's purposes, Undermining all of God's intentions for us, indeed not just us as human beings but for all of his creation. The great stuff up, if you will, that we have caused in turning our backs to God. That great separation. Well, Jesus serves to bring it all back together. Notice, if you will, through his incarnation, that is God coming in the flesh, the word, as the Apostle John describes the Christ before the incarnation, the word reunited heaven, including the creator, and earth, including us, his creatures, which became estranged due to the rebellion. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ opened the way to reconciliation with God, Atonement or at one the bringing together as one and new creation. Through his reign at the right hand side of the Father, Jesus Christ and his spirit continue the work of redeeming and sanctifying all of creation. Through his return, Jesus Christ will, will, future tense note, he will complete his work of reconciliation and redemption with judgment and the ushering in of new heavens and new earth. Notice the words from the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 21. As he speaks of events following on from the return of Christ and the judgment, then, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, says John. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So that image of the bringing back together of heaven and earth, a return, if you will, to the way things were in the beginning, 
a return, if you will, to God's original purpose for us, despite our rebellion against him. And you'll notice the link between the two, the very one that makes this reunion possible, this reconciliation possible, the person Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the topic of resurrection, which has been already touched upon this morning. Um, Craig gave us some insights into the significance of the resurrection of Christ in preparing our hearts for sharing in the Lord's Supper this morning. I'd like to pick up on that theme, that very central, that very important theme. And I'd like to introduce the concept by citing the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. He speaks of making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, he says, and one spirit, just as you were called in to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Call to the one hope of our calling. Resurrection. Resurrection. Notice Paul again, his words in Romans chapter 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labour pains until now and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we are saved Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for he who hopes uh, for what is seen. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Resurrection. Interesting, isn't it? Sometimes I think we all too easily overlook the investment, the stake that all of creation has in our redemption. Notice it's not just humankind he's speaking of here. All of creation has a stake in God's wonderful plan for us, culminating in our resurrection from the grave. Paul says a great deal more about this, again, touched upon this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour and raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Notice the contrast that the Apostle Paul is setting up here. Physical, spiritual, weakness, power. He goes on, listen... I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. Most of us will die. The ones who are exempted from that 
are those who will be alive at the time of Christ's return. But whether one is alive at the time of Christ's return or if one has died minutes before or thousands of years before the return of Christ, everybody, everybody will be transformed. In a moment, he says, verse 52, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled, death has been swallowed up in glory, in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? In another context, Paul, again, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look not at what can be seen, but what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. Again, Paul echoing his own words that we noted earlier from Romans chapter 8. For we know that if this earthly tent that we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. And notice again the contrast here as it pertains specifically to the body. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed... We have, nonetheless, a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. If indeed we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan under our burden because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive recompense for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Our present bodies are not ultimate. Our present bodies are not ultimate. They will be transformed. But we would be mistaken if we concluded from that that therefore our bodies don't matter or therefore what we do in our bodies here and now don't matter. What we do with them now still matters greatly. To God, and God will hold us accountable for it. Let me illustrate it this way. I attempt here to bring together all of those contrasts that the Apostle Paul has described related to the present body and the future resurrected body. On the left there, you'll notice this is our present earthly tent, sown in dishonour, using Paul's language, sown in weakness, sown a physical body, perishable, mortal. On the right, in stark contrast, we have Paul's description of the resurrection body, the future heavenly tent, as he describes it, raised in glory, 
raised in power, raised a spiritual body. But notice it's still a body. We think of Jesus' resurrected body, where there was that strong sense of continuity, but also discontinuity. It was the same body, but as a resurrected, glorified body, there was stark difference. Imperishable. Immortal. Now, to this point, we're pretty much done with our background and we're ready to start the lesson. But this context is necessary for us to understand this temporal phase, if you will, between occupying our present perishable mortal bodies, which is, you know, I'm pretty sure that would describe all of us here right now, and our future imperishable immortal bodies that we will receive in the resurrection. There is this interim, an in-between period. If you think back to the beginning, that graphic with the doorway, there is that period of a a, a liminal space, a, a threshold between, if you will. And that's the idea, or that's the realm in which we are talking about when we ask the question, what happens to us after we die? Physical death, remember, fundamentally the separation of spirit from the body. Our physical death is a temporary, intermediate state of nakedness, as Paul describes it, while waiting to be further clothed. That in-between stage. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 4, Paul said, while we are still in this tent, this present physical body, we groan under our burden because we wish to be, not to be unclothed, sorry, but to be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, I need to point out something that's really important for Christians to understand because, man, we have made a mess of this and we've let the likes of Plato and other Greek philosophies pervert our understanding away from what scripture teaches. I've used, inciting Paul, a language of contrast, body and spirit. Body and spirit. And it's very easy to get the mistaken idea, following Mr Plato, where the idea of body, the material world, and he'll go a step further and say that's, that's second rate, even evil, is separate and apart from, alien to, the spirit and the spirit world, which is, which is good. A dualism, if you will, a separation. That's Greek philosophy, which the church has done a pretty good job of perpetuating through the centuries, but it's not what the Bible teaches The Bible teaches that to be human is to be an embodied spirit. An embodied spirit. That is our good, natural, if you will, God-ordained identity and, and state of being. It's not that our bodies are to be rejected or belittled in some way, that, that our hope of heaven is that we'll be able to discard our bodies and, and our little Casper the ghost spirits will float away or some such image. No. Paul says the body is essential to our being. 
The difference is not that, that our spirits will be separated and free from our bodies. The difference is that our temporal, physical, corruptible, mortal bodies will be raised glorious. It's not a separation that Paul describes. It is a reuniting of the spirit with the body. The difference is that it's going to be a resurrected, glorified body. By God's design, we are embodied spirits. Okay, now with that background, let's look at what Jesus says here. I'm not sure that this was Jesus' primary focus, but certainly, incidentally, if you will, he gives us an insight into this question of what happens when we die. And of course, most of us would be well familiar with his parable about the rich man and Lazarus. Let's read the text. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Man, this guy's low. He is on the margin. Even the dogs rank above him. And they remind him of that by coming along and licking him. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now, we would do well if we would recognise, as the great theologian Lunig does, there is a wonderful insight given here about the need that we need to take our opportunities in life to be a blessing to others. You see, this rich person, and it's interesting, isn't it? Not even named, just a rich person. But he had a lot of good stuff. And here was Lazarus, the one who's dignified by being given a name. Here's Lazarus, who has nothing. The moral of the story, surely, is that the rich should be sharing with the poor. Another insight. Perhaps if the rich man had have looked upon Lazarus, a brother Jew, presumably, a child of Abraham, a child of God, had he looked upon Lazarus and seen himself in the face of Lazarus and seen himself in the midst of Lazarus' own desperation and need, maybe then the rich man might have been compelled to share some of his, even his scraps 
Death is not the end. It's a reset. One's circumstances after death are directly related to how we live now. And death is conclusive. There are no second chances. There is this chasm as it's described in this parable. The chasm between the two. There is no crossing over one way or the other. He continues, he answered, this is the rich man speaking from Hades, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, which of course is code for what we would call the Old Testament scriptures, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And of course, as Christians, we can see the delicious irony of this. Because the one telling this story is the very one that was going to declare once and for all to all humanity through his own coming back from the grave. The truth that he is truly the son of the living God. And unless we miss the point, we have both the scriptures and the risen Lord. We are without excuse. We are without excuse. Just a diagram, certainly my understanding, of what Jesus teaches about life in the interim between our physical death and prior to the resurrection. Where do our spirits go when we die? Jesus describes in this parable a realm he calls Hades. In the Old Testament the word is Sheol, the realm of the dead. The realm of the dead. And that realm, Hades, is divided into two compartments, if you will. And there is a chasm between the two compartments that cannot be crossed over. One compartment, you'll notice, is described as the bosom of Abraham. Now, remember the Jewish context of the telling of this story. That's an image for a Jew that would be so rich and comforting. If you want to be anywhere as a good, faithful Jew, you want to be in the company of Father Abraham. In the bosom of Abraham, where those disembodied, Spirits. Remember death, physical death, a separation of body and spirit. There is that temporary state of nakedness, as Paul describes it. Not to be a desirable condition, but it's an but it's a, 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 a intermediate condition. We find ourselves between, between bodies, if you will, the natural body and the resurrected body. Disembodied spirits in paradise. And on the other side of the chasm was described, Tartarus is the word that's used in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, where Peter talks about the place of the fallen angels, those angels who'd rebelled against God. They, that's the realm of, or their abode where they await judgment. So disembodied spirits in torment, as was the case with the rich man. Interestingly, 
Paul uses this language in Philippians chapter 1, which gives us an added insight, I guess. Uh, He said to the church at Philippi, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Paul speaks of his desire to depart and to be with Christ. Paul, of course, at this point in history, is speaking as not just a Jew, but as a Christian. And so instead of the bosom of Abraham, I'd suggest being with Christ is that phrase describing the equivalent of the bosom of Abraham. Now, this leaves us with an awful lot of questions that we we don't have time to explore. You know, one thing, well, well, if that's the case, then then what's the point of judgment? I mean, I already know where, if if I end up with Christ in paradise, then, then I know what my eternal state's going to be. If I end up in torment, then I know what my eternal state's going to be. Well, yes, that's right. In that sense, judgment, and this is the thing we've got to grapple with and take serious because it's sobering issues that we're dealing with here. Death is final in that sense. We've made our choice in the life that we live now. That's why it's so imperative that we treat seriously the question of what future do I want? We know what God wants for us. God has gone to extraordinary lengths that we could be reconciled with him, even to the point of sending his own son to suffer and die for us, to make it possible for us to be reconciled. There's no question about God's motive or God's intentions and God's purposes for us, his desire for us. The question is, what do we want? What do we want? And here is the scary thing. God will honour our choice. Enough of this nonsense about, oh God, what sort of God would send people to hell? Well, I don't know. I don't know of such a God. I know the Father of Jesus has indicated that he will honour our choice and if it's hell that we choose, then he will honour that. It'll break his heart, but he'll honour that. Just as he will honour our choice to say yes to him, our choice to be with Jesus for eternity. Our choice, as we read earlier in Revelation, to take our place in the new heavens and the new earth as heavenly Jerusalem and picture again this, this, this bringing together, this reconciliation image as heaven comes down, as it were, from the heavenlies to earth. And there we are, sharing eternity with God. That's God's heart. That's God's purposes. That's God's intention for all of us. But God gives us the final choice. He gives us the final choice. To conclude, again the Apostle Paul, this time writing to the church at Thessalonica, 
And I hope that now we will not just understand the imagery that he describes here, get a sense of the the hope that underlies these truths, get a sense of the, the hopefulness, the encouragement that it conveys to us all. Because any one of us, any one of us can lay hold of this promise. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words.